it's a pleasure to be here um, and to learn about this, uh, this institute. So Harry Hopkins, um, they said he was a spectral figure in the administration of President uh, Franklin Roosevelt. Slightly sinister. He's kind of a, uh, a ramshackle character, but boyishly attractive. He was gaunt, pauper thin, uh, full of nervous energy fueled by <clears throat> two packs of Lucky Strikes a day and, uh, and lots of uh, coffee, caffeine. He, uh, he was a, uh, an experienced social worker, in-your-face uh, New Deal reformer, but he much preferred the company of the rich and the well-born. Uh, they said he had, he used to say he had a mind like a, uh, a razor, a tongue like a skinny knife. The New Yorker uh, profile described him as a uh, purveyor of wit and anecdote. He loved to tell the story of the time that uh, Roosevelt wheeled himself into um, Churchill's bedroom unannounced. It was during the time that uh, Winston Churchill was living at the White House. He, he, Churchill just emerged from his afternoon bath, uh, gleaming pink uh, starkers, as you say here in the UK. In turn, he gave the president a full frontal shot. Uh, the president was embarrassed, started to back out. Think nothing of it, thundered Churchill, prime minister of Great Britain, has nothing to hide from President of the United States. Whether true or not, of course, there's a lot of doubt about it. Nevertheless, uh, Hopkins dined out on that story uh, for the rest of his life. Hopkins was a, uh, a gambler, a better. Horses, cards, even the time of day. Uh, he was married three times. Um, between his second and third marriages, he dated uh, Glamorous women, U.S. movie star Paulette Goddard, uh, a, uh, an actress, Dorothy Hale, who actually jumped to her death from her Essex House apartment in New York, allegedly because she had been jilted by Harry. Uh, he, uh, and then, of course, there was a glamorous Paris editor of Harper's Bazaar, who Harry married his third marriage, um, upstairs in the White House, the only marriage upstairs there. Um, in the summer of 1942. Hopkins regarded money, uh, his own, as well as uh, everyone else's, something to be spent as quickly as possible. He put people into uh, two categories, talkers and doers. Hopkins was definitely a doer. So my book, The Hopkins Touch, um, begins uh, May 10th, 1940, and that was the day, of course, that uh, the Germans overran the Low Countries. Hitler's Panzer divisions were massing in the Ardennes Forest, ready to invade Luxembourg and France. It was the um, <clears throat> day that um, Churchill became Prime Minister of Great Britain, and within a few weeks the rest of Europe would be under the uh, Nazi swastika. Um, that evening, May 10, 1940, 
Hopkins and Roosevelt were upstairs, um, second floor of the White House in the Oval Study, and they had just finished their dinner. As usual, they were joshing and telling each other stories, uh, gossiping. Uh, at that time, Harry was 49, the president was 57. They had uh, they'd known each other for a decade. Eleanor and Franklin Roosevelt had uh, consoled Harry following the death of his second wife, Barbara, of breast cancer in 1937. And since that time, Mrs. Roosevelt, um, First Lady, had been the surrogate mother for Harry's uh, young daughter at that time. She was seven years old, Diana. Diana's still living out in northern uh, Virginia uh, and was a useful, helpful source for this, for this book on the living in the White House as she did. <clears throat> so uh, by the time, by the spring of 1940, Harry was almost a member of the Roosevelt family. He was the uh, president's closest friend at the time, uh, closest advisor, confidant, if anybody could be said to be confidants of, Ro of Roosevelt. Um, that evening, uh, the president sensed that Harry was not feeling well. He knew, of course, that Harry had had one half, some said two-thirds of his stomach removed by the surgeons at the Mayo <coughs> Clinic a couple of years before. And the diagnosis back then was cancer. And the president knew that since that time, Harry had been unable to regain weight. Something was terribly wrong with his digestive system. So the president insisted that Harry Hopkins spend the night. Well, Harry Hopkins was the man who came to dinner and he never left. For the next three and a half years, Harry would live upstairs, southeast corner of the White House, just a few doors down from the president's own bedroom. Um, his daughter Diana would live on the third floor near the, uh, near the sky parlor. As the, as the nation was um, drawn into the uh, Second World War, Hopkins would uh, live in the White House. Uh, he, would, he set up a card table in the big Lincoln Room where he lived. That's where he lived in the Lincoln Room. And he did the business for the president from there. Um, so during those war years, he devoted his life, literally his life, to helping the president win the war. He would shortly form uh, what became a lifelong friendship with Winston Clementine Churchill, and he would uh, he would earn a measure of certainly a measure of respect and perhaps a little bit of trust from Joseph Stalin, uh, dictator of the Soviet Union, who Harry would meet with several times during the war, um, and he would play a critical role, and I argue in the book the critical role in establishing and preserving this coalition between the United States, Great Britain, and the Soviet Union through the leaders that, that won the war. <clears throat> so what was it about Harry that enabled him to climb uh, to the pinnacle during the war of wartime diplomacy? His origins provide a few clues. He was born in Iowa in 1890, um, son of an itinerant harness maker uh, with 
champagne tastes. Come back to that in a minute. Uh, his father, his father's name was Al, he uh, traveled the upper Midwest hawking harnesses, gambling, uh, and probably on bowling matches back then. Uh, his father was a ferociously competitive bowler. His mother, Anna, was a strict church-going Methodist believer in social justice, helping the poor. And it was she who insisted that the family settle down in Grinnell, Iowa, tiny town, middle of Iowa, the home of Grinnell College. I was there last week. Um, for, for Harry, Grinnell College was foundational. Back then, it, it had an impressive faculty, at least a lot of them were. They were, and they were devoted to the, what was called the social gospel movement, <clears throat> the idea that the principles of Christianity could be applied to solving all the nation's uh, social ills. So Harry graduated from Grinnell in 1912 and followed the path of his sister, Ada. He became a social worker. His first job was at the Christadora House, Lower East Side of Manhattan, in the neighborhood where the largest uh, concentration of immigrants in the entire United States lived. For the next 20 years, Harry would rise to leadership positions, not only at the Christadora House, but several other large social service, social welfare agencies. Uh, by the mid to uh, late 1920s, he was uh, among the best-known social workers in America. He uh, co-founded the American Association of Social Workers. But as he rose to the top of, of his profession, his marriage, his first marriage, began to lose its stitches. He, had, uh, he married a woman named Ethel Gross, in 1913, and she was a uh, Hungarian-born Jewish woman that grew up in one of the tenements right near the Christadora house. She'd been mentored by some of the women in the top ranks of uh, New York liberal society. So she and Harry were committed to the social causes of the day in New York. Um, around night, and they, they, and they raised three sons. Um, Around 1926, 1927, Harry began to feel that Ethel was too clingy and too needy. And besides, Harry had inherited his father's champagne tastes. Hung out at nights in Manhattan with his pals and speakeasies. He, uh, he uh, gambled a lot, borrowed a lot of money, some from uh, Ethel's brothers. He was addicted to English romantic poetry, Keats. Um, had an affair with a woman in his office, fell in love with her, um, felt terribly guilty. And in 1929, hired a, a psychoanalyst um, with the hope that he could be talked out of this love affair. Um, didn't work. <laughs> uh, unusual to hire a psychoanalyst in 1929. Um, so, uh, Depths of despair, he divorced Ethel, leaving her to raise the three boys. The divorce decree provided that half of his salary, if he had one, would go to her. But, in a sense, the Great Depression was a godsend to Harry. Uh, it was a depression that introduced him to Eleanor and Franklin Roosevelt. It was the depression that uh, enabled he and his new wife, Barbara, the woman from the office, to move down to Washington, D.C. 
unemployment uh, running at 25% in America. The, uh, the new president, Franklin Roosevelt, in 1933, during his first 100 days, hired Harry to head up the first in a series of, the, of his new, chief, new Deal jobs programs. Culminating in 1935 with Harry's uh, appointment to lead the WPA, the Works Progress Administration, the very centerpiece of the New Deal. And the mission of the WPA was to put Americans back to work on infrastructure projects. Sounds kind of familiar. Um, so, um, surviving on coffee and cigarettes and looking as if he slept in the office, which he often did, Harry and his staff at the WPA achieved spectacular results. They put eight and a half million Americans back to work. They pumped uh, $10 billion into the economy. Harry uh, famously reported to the president, they always called him boss. He said, well, boss, <clears throat> they're all back at work, but for God's sake, don't ask me what they're doing. <laughs> So by the mid to late 1930s, Harry was uh, among the most prominent uh, members of Roosevelt's New Deal team. Hung out with uh, Harriman's, Swope's, the Kennedys. Uh, then around 1938, 1939, with the president's definite encouragement, Harry began promoting himself as a presidential candidate, looking to the elections in 1940. Um, he leased a farm back in Iowa. He uh, rejoined the Methodist Church in Grinnell for a time. His hopes uh, came crashing down when hundreds of newspapers reported a story about a comment that he allegedly made to a friend uh, at the racetrack. He's over at the racetrack saying, we shall tax and tax, spend and spend, elect and elect. Um, and that did it. Uh, he denied it, but it stuck with him for the rest of his life. It became a rallying cry for those who hated Roosevelt and the New Deal. And then, as if that were not enough, in uh, the fall of 1939, when war was breaking out in Europe, uh, Harry found himself back at the Mayo Clinic. The doctors had ruled out a recurrence of cancer couldn't figure out why he was unable to absorb any nutrients. Came up with a dog's breakfast of, um, un of uh, intravenous feeding, blood transfusions, injections of liver extract. And this is a, a combination that he had to have administered to him for the rest of his life off and on. Sometimes it worked, sometimes it didn't. For the rest of his life he couldn't regain weight. He would often be on the verge of starvation. So in the spring of 1940, uh, this is before he moved into the White House, he was living in a tiny uh, rented house in Georgetown with his daughter Diane and his dog, Buffer. Uh, and the president had some daunting challenges on his mind, uh, spring of 1940. The president knew that the phony war in Europe would, send, would soon end and Hitler would turn his armies to the West, envelop the rest of uh, Europe threatened to invade, the, uh, invade this country, Great Britain. The president knew the Japanese uh, were on the move in the, far, in the Far East, in China, had aggressive designs on 
uh, Indonesia, where the oil was. Um, the Democrats were scheduled to convene their convention in Chicago in July 1940. And the president had to decide whether to seek an unprecedented third term as president or whether to step aside and become a lame duck uh, for uh, the rest of uh, 1940. And he thought a lot about it. But I think he saw an opportunity to, uh, to achieve greatness as a wartime president. He knew that war was coming. Um, he knew that war was coming. The country's uh, national security was gravely threatened at that time. Um, and he still, hadn't, uh, he still hadn't solved the problem of the Great Depression. Unemployment was still running 15%. Um, so he wasn't really a, a very successful president in his second term. But I think uh, he saw an opportunity that uh, <clears throat> was the war. Um, so um, by that time, um, then Harry moved into the White House. Um, and uh, <clears throat> during the eight months that he lived in, as, as, the, as the year 1940 was coming to a close, Harry had been living in the White House for eight months. And he'd become virtually indispensable. Um, the summer of 1940, Harry went out to Chicago um, where the Democrats were convening. And he worked two hotel rooms and helped orchestrate the draft that got the president the nomination. And then in the fall of 1940, uh, Harry went up to uh, New York um, and helped organize the fall campaign for the president. He put, he put together the famous speechwriting team with Sam Rosenman, Robert Sherwood, and himself. And then after the um, after the election was over in December 1940, um, Hopkins and Roosevelt, just the two of them, they left Washington, boarded a Navy cruiser called the Tuscaloosa for a cruise in the Caribbean. And that's where they came up with the idea of Lend-Lease, the idea that uh, America as the arsenal of democracy would supply the nations fighting uh, the Germans with the war material that they would need. And they would not have to pay until after the war was over. It's called Lend-Lease, uh, Lend-Me-Your-Garden-Hose, your was what Roosevelt said. Um, so uh, in London, um, they came up with Lend-Lease. And so on the last night of 1940, um, in London, the city of London was still, was still burning. And as you all know, uh, by that time, uh, the citizens of London had on, undergone four straight months of what was called the Blitz. Almost every night, uh, fleets of German bombers would appear over the city, bomb without restriction, limitation, houses, apartments, flats, factories, shipping yards. Thousands of Londoners had perished. The Blitz, Hitler's armies were 22 miles across the English Channel. And on uh, December 29, 1940, that was the night that Roosevelt gave his famous Arsenal Democracy speech in Washington. On that night in London, that was the largest single attack of the entire Blitz. Hundreds of German bombers uh, using radio beams vectored on St. Paul's Cathedral, dropped millions of incendiaries around that cathedral in the old city. 
So on New Year's Eve, <clears throat> the city was burning, and Churchill drafted a cable. Dear Mr. President, I do not know what is in your mind, and we do not know what America plans to do, but we are fighting for our lives. Ten days later, January 10, 1941, Hopkins found himself in the basement of Number 10 Downing Street, having lunch alone with Winston Churchill. The windows upstairs in, that, in the house had been blown out by the bombs, that's why they were in the basement. And Hopkins had been sent over to England by Roosevelt in a Pan Am Yankee Clipper. Uh, his mission was to assess whether Churchill and his government and the British people were going to be able to withstand uh, these attacks by the Germans from the air and, more importantly, from the sea. And uh, if he felt they could survive, he was to convey to Churchill and the British uh, the idea that America was prepared to help them hold off the Germans, but he could not commit America to going to war. And they said of that first lunch that it was a long, liquid lunch. And of that first meeting, Churchill wrote in his memoirs, see if I get this right, <clears throat> thus I met Harry Hopkins, that extraordinary man who played and was to play sometimes um, decisive part in the whole movement of the war. And he said, his was a soul that flamed out of a frail and failing body, crumbling lighthouse from which, be from which shone beams that led great fleets to harbor. He says, in churches, I always enjoyed his company, especially when things went ill, but he could be very disagreeable and say hard and sour things. So from that point on, Hopkins had established an incredibly important relationship with Churchill. And a few weeks later, he would cement a relationship, Hopkins would cement a relationship with the British people. It happened um, at uh, a station house hotel, Glasgow, Scotland. Blitz was still on, mid-January 1941. Um, there was a big dinner there. Lots of dignitaries were present. Churchill was in the audience, or Churchill was there. He was in the audience. He was up at the head table. Hopkins was at the head table. Um, and they asked Hopkins to speak after dinner. And uh, they said, those who were there said he looked uh, frail, tired, unkempt. Uh, he rose and he raised his glass and said, I suppose you wish to know what I what I plan to tell the president when I return to the United States. Well, I will quote you one verse in the book of books, in the truth of which my Scottish mother was brought up. Whither thou goest, I will go. Where thou lodgest, I will lodge. Thy people uh, shall be my people, thy God, my God. He said, even to the end. Well, Churchill, of course, was brought to tears, uh, no great feat. He was kind of like our uh, 
our Speaker of the House, John Boehner. <laughs> but more importantly, uh, Hopkins' words, especially that phrase, even to the end, spread rapidly throughout all of Great Britain. And he, he had literally thrown a lifeline to the, the frightened and battled British people. And they didn't forget. So it was a it was a it was a major moment uh, uh, for Hopkins. <clears throat> but during that uh, during those weeks when uh, Hopkins was in England, that first uh, trip, a period of six weeks, January February 1941, uh, and during his uh, subsequent trips to the country during the war, there were several. Um, he would live most weekends with Winston and Clementine Churchill. Uh, now Clementine was uh, famous for not taking to people that she did not know well. And uh, famously, she didn't take to Roosevelt the first time she met him. But Hopkins was an exception. She was captivated by him from the beginning. She loved his, his offbeat uh, raffishness, his morden sense of humor. Um, she, was, she was amused at his, he complained to her about his itchy long underwear, uh, or the lack of heat in the old, in the, in checkers. So Hopkins would spend hours in the downstairs bathroom where the heat pipes ran through, shivering in his long wool overcoat, his hat, his scarf, he's working on his cables and memos, and at nighttime, uh, Clementine would mother him. She, he'd be up drinking brandy with Winston uh, after midnight, and uh, she'd come up and rescue him, tell him it was time to go to bed. Uh, that uh, that uh, she'd put a hot water bottle uh, between the sheets. She um, she marveled at his distinct touch with her grumpy husband. One morning, um, Churchill turned to Hopkins and said. This, this water tastes funny. Of course, and Hopkins said, of course it does. It's got no whiskey in it. Fancy you a judge of water. <laughs> there, was a, there was another dinner um, late January 1941. This one was at uh, Claridge's, the West End. Um, the, the host of the dinner were the lords and the barons of the British press. Churchill was not invited. Hopkins was the, uh, the guest of honor. And uh, the journalists who were there noted what uh, Hopkins looked like and, and what he said. They said he looked uh, shy and, uh, and uh, untidy. They always used that word. Uh, and they asked him to, to speak afternoon. Instead of addressing the group as a whole, he he walked slowly around that big table and he paused at each of the clusters of journalists, spoke to them quietly, reassuringly. And he gave them a sense that night that while America was not yet in the war, she was marching beside them, the British people. And then one of the journalists wrote, uh, we were happy men all. Our confidence and our courage had been stimulated by a contact, which Shakespeare and Henry V had a phrase a little touch of Harry in the night. So the Hopkins touch was not little, nor was it 
light. In a few months, uh, July 1941, Hopkins was in London and he initiated an incredibly dangerous 30 plus hour flight, July 1941, from the north coast of Scotland in one of those PVY Catalinas from the north coast of Scotland around the North Cape of Norway and down into Moscow. <clears throat> and uh, at the time, July 1940, the German divisions were marching along the same route that Napoleon took in 1812 toward the gates of Moscow. And uh, they were capturing and killing Red Army soldiers by the thousands and even sometimes by the hundreds of thousands. They, uh, they seemed unstoppable and at night, you know, the Germans were bombing the city of Moscow. But Hopkins spent two very long nights alone in the Kremlin except for interpreters with Joseph Stalin. And uh, he'd be criticized for the rest of his life and still today um, for what he said that night, but he uh, and the way he behaved that night, but he said that the United States was prepared to provide <clears throat> the Red Army and the Soviets with whatever they needed, no strings attached, no questions asked, so long as they kept killing uh, Germans by the bushel. And as I said before, from that time forward, uh, Stalin had respect for, for Hopkins. He thought Hopkins and he and was correct, thought Hopkins spoke for the president, he did. Um, and he may have had a, a bit of trust, uh, that's hard to say with Stalin. But what uh, Stalin used to say of Hopkins, that Hopkins spoke paudusia, paudusia in Russian means according to the soul. It's a peculiarly Russian accolade denoting strength and uh, depth, and compassion. Um, Soul, <clears throat> soul. So, during the um, during those war years, Hopkins, I argue in my book, was the pectin and the glue. <clears throat> he knew that victory depended upon holding together this often fragile three-party coalition: Roosevelt, Churchill, and Stalin. And this would be his single-minded focus throughout the war. Um, Churchill was in awe of Hopkins' ability to focus. Churchill used to make a joke of it at wartime conferences, call him uh, Lord Root of the Matter. Hopkins would walk into the room and Churchill would announce, here comes Lord Root of the Matter. Um, there's a lot more to the Hopkins uh, story and I hope we could answer some questions about it that you may have. But let me just uh, close by paraphrasing uh, a few words from the, uh, from the end of the book. Um, in the end, the, um, the word that comes closest to capturing the quality that enabled Hopkins to achieve success is, uh, is touch, um, a little touch of Harry in the night. The, um, the two of them, Shakespeare's disguised King Harry becoming one with the night one with his, his troops in the night before the Battle of Agincourt, Harry Hopkins, bonding with the leaders of uh, the United States, Great Britain, and the Soviet Union. Two of them shared a, uh, shared a uh, 
uh, shared a, a talent for connecting. Um, Stalin, to Stalin, uh, Hopkins spoke Pauduchia, according to soul. Churchill saw him as a crumbling lighthouse. To Roosevelt, uh, Hopkins literally gave his life, asking for nothing except to serve. And they were the, uh, the happy few, I argue. Um, and Hopkins was, uh, was one of them. So thank you. Um, <laughs>